Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me, Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world, it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of musicians is lost and restricted. Having both suffered in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. Coming today from, can I say where we are? Yeah. The crypt. The crypt. St. Clement Dane's Church on the Strand. Very fancy. Yeah. <laughs> Feels like a big outing for us. It does, doesn't it? It's either usually <laughs> my house or your house. It, or Some someone's house yeah. or somewhere weird or oh, somewhere where there's a hoover going on. But anyway, it's lovely to have you with us, Kate um, Kennedy. Hi. I was going to get your name wrong then. <laughs> it's alliterative. Once you've got the K, you're pretty much there. So. Yeah, Kate Kennedy. Kennedy oh, do you like to be known as Dr. Kennedy? No. Dr. Kate. No, no, no. Dr. Kate. Dr. Kate is a BBC thing. No, no. Kate Kennedy is fine. Okay. Yes, that'll do. Well, it's really great to, to be speaking to you today. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to like for me just to summarise everything you do. So I was going to get you to do it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I can't remember. I was like, <laughs> author, writer, cellist, academic, Unfaked broadcaster. Unfaked career summarises it nicely. It's, it's, it's so cool though, because like, yeah. Before we pressed record, Hattie was just saying that she'd copied and pasted your Wikipedia page into the notes and you were saying, Kate, that you hadn't read it. So it would be, <laughs> it would be quite funny to read out oh what it, goodness, who Wikipedia, who it thinks you are. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll compare, I'll compare the Wikipedia to what you explain yourself to be, but um, can you just give us... <laughs> it's like a really awful, this is your life. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us an overview of kind of what the work is that you do, sure. who you are, and yeah, sure. all of that sort so, of thing? Um, well, interestingly, thinking about who I am, I am largely a biographer. So I spend most of my working life thinking about who people are and how they define themselves. So this is a, this is a useful act of self-reflection. Um, I started off life as a cellist. I studied in Cambridge and London. Um, I also read English, and so I've always had a bit of a split personality disorder between English literature and music. Um, at one point, I had two CVs, one as a Baroque cellist and the other as someone who talked about First World War poetry, and that's, that's a hard career plan to make sense of. Um, but I've spent my academic life uh, working as a lecturer at Cambridge and now at Oxford, between English and music, thinking about the, the, the connectivity between the two, basically. Um, and for the last decade or so, I've very much been interested in biography and, and particularly how we sit a life story alongside the work. And for music, that's quite interesting. You know, if you've got a symphony and you've got a life, how do you write usefully about the two without superficially slapping one on top of the other? So that's, that's where my interests are, but I'm still playing freelance various points of my life much less various other points like now all the time 
and I've written a lot about the 20th century musical literature. That's, that's my area. And I've broadcast for Radio 3 and Radio 4, but mostly Radio 3. Mm. And what's this... Um, sorry. What's this I hear what's about? What's this I hear about? <laughs> the Oxford Centre for Life Writing. Ah, uh -huh, yes. Yeah. Oxford Centre for Life Writing, Ocklu, which is Ocklu. how we've become known. Cause it's too, <laughs> That's so Oxbridge. Too long. It's so Oxbridge. It's such a Love silly that. name for anything. So it's a, it's a wonderful research centre. It's based at Wolfson College, Oxford. And it was founded 11 years ago now by the greatest living biographer, Dame Hermione Lee, who is my dear friend and colleague when she was the president of the college. And, and so it's really her baby. And I took it over a few years, well, seven, seven, eight years ago now. And I worked very closely with her. And we have a, an international community of writers and scholars, everybody who thinks about lives, whether it's as an opera librettist or a novelist or a, someone writing their memoir, um, all kinds of different projects and lots of students. And we do huge amounts of outreach because understanding who you are and how to learning how to articulate that can be a very therapeutic exercise. So unlike most other areas of academia, we have a, a huge outreach potential. Wow. So that's really fun. We're so it's not just life writing from the perspective of biography, but also from autobiography? Would you oh, say? totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, autobiography, know. memoir, drama. I'm particularly interested cool. in dramatised recitals. Any way of putting the life and work together in an interesting, creative way and shedding light on it. That's, that's what we're about. Wow, and and I mean, it feels like with with the sort of whole history we have of composers and the way they're talked about and everything, it, it feels like a an interesting and and maybe even an understandable route to have gone into, having been yourself a cellist and studied the cello and everything. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your earlier life as a cellist, like Wells Cathedral School. You know, how was that whole experience for you? And <laughs> well, so I was I was from a I was the first generation in my family to go to university. Um, I was a shocking geek as a child. I was from a pretty rough bit of inner city Bristol. Um, and I taught myself classical music through listening to Radio 3 and writing it all down and memorising it. No you imagine the spellings of things like Shostakovich when you heard it on the radio. So and I used cute. to... It's, it's so dweeby. <laughs> and, and I used to live in Bristol Central Library and, and tape all their records and memorise them all and with absolutely no frame of reference at all as to what was good music and what wasn't. And, wow. Um, and so I, so I became obsessed with classical music and, and adored it and wanted to just drink it all in and, and, and presumably got to a fairly decent level of knowledge and was, was a cellist. I, in fact, at my junior school, I wanted to play the guitar because that was the only instrument I'd seen from a non-classical music family. And the headmaster said, well, I'm afraid there isn't any space in the guitar group, but a cello looks like one sideways, so here's a cello. <laughs> and I'd never heard of a cello. And I loved it. And then found out about Jacqueline Dupre through the library and, and kind of fell in love with her and wanted to be her, except ideally without the tragic early death. And, uh, we can hope. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I've made it past 42 now, thank God. So, nice. so I'm doing okay. But... Uh, yeah, so I practiced and practiced and practiced. And then my music teacher at senior school thought, okay, she's now kind of at a point where we can't help her, took me to the Royal Academy because he'd studied there to play to David Strange, who was the head of strings at the time, who said, you should be at a specialist music school. So he put me in touch with one of his pupils there. So I started having lessons privately with a wonderful cellist called Alison Wells, appropriately at Wells Cathedral School. 
Um, but my parents didn't have any money at all. And they said, well, if it costs under a thousand pounds a year for you to board and go to school, then you can go. And, and the, the government stepped in and gave me a 100% scholarship, thank goodness. And so I went with very dodgy technique, but an enormous passion and total, total commitment and did very well, very quickly but without the technique to support it. So I'd never heard of tendonitis and I'd never heard of any kind of tension injuries. And of course, it's, a, you know, it's an accident waiting to happen, having this completely over-enthusiastic mm. teenager, unsupervised, practicing seven hours a day, doing trills and going... caning my left arm. And it was coming up to Young Musician of the Year and I was really focused. And, and something just snapped one morning. I was doing these ridiculous trills and it was my third finger, which is kind of weak anyway and probably terrible tension. Um, and I just remember this burning, kind of bright burning pain down my arm. And I couldn't put my finger on the strings. I just couldn't use my third and fourth fingers at all. And I tried and tried and I couldn't play through it. And, and so I then left it thinking, well, in a few weeks time, that'll be okay. And it wasn't. And then a couple of months on, it was still, I was still unusable. And so I would sit there with my cello in the practice room imagining playing with some Bach suites on the stand, but without being able to touch, without being able to use my left hand, I could play open strings, but I couldn't do any more. So I have a whole repertory that I've, that at the time I'd never played, but I had an, a sense of exactly how I would phrase everything and what it would feel like and mm, a different relationship wow. to the music. What age were you at that point where the injury started? 18, oh, okay, so like, you were still form. at Wells, but... I was still oh, at school, yeah. So I was in this kind of awful tortured position of having got all this money being poured into me being there it being the kind of fulfillment of my dreams to that point being so desperate to catch up with the others who'd all been through national children's orchestra mm. and all these things my parents had never even heard of you know and that had fantastic teaching all the way through but not being able to touch the instrument and watching the time ticking on and ticking on and mm. and and being a kind of driven neurotic 17 year old I stopped eating to punish myself for being so weak at having physically fallen apart and, and obviously that isn't the route to helping much and I remember at some point the school saying look you have just got to look after yourself because it's either going to be hospital or it's going to be Cambridge and it's up to you which you're going to choose and I thought yeah okay well, uh, perhaps I'll go back to the eating thing again mm. and um and so I went to Cambridge rather than music college because there was no way I could have got through enough practice at that point and then went to the Royal College afterwards but on Baroque because Baroque cello is much lighter and gentler on your arms so I was kind of pushed into early music just because of the sort of physical disability oh, really wow so there was no real kind of support for the injury people didn't necessarily know what to do or you they didn't, didn't know what to do I think yeah. they, they were very concerned about it and there was another chap who's a dear friend of mine in my year who had a similar problem he had the most enormous growth spurt and so all his tendons were overstretched and he came back after one summer holiday looking like the BFG I mean he was just <laughs> so ridiculously tall and and he was a wonderful pianist and, and still is now but it's taken most of his adult life to work out a technique that works around his injuries and the school didn't really know what to do. They, mm. There was an Alexander Technique teacher, but it went that away beyond her. Yeah, exactly. And they took us, gosh, they took us to some amazing crazy lady in Bath who, who was French. And I think she'd escaped 
Paris during the war. <laughs> she was very, very old and very dramatic with incredible eyeshadow and, and all these dangly things. It was like a cave of sort of strange pendants and crystals and stuff in her house. And she would get a little bowl of olive oil and rub it on her fingers, then vigorously rub bits of our arms around <laughs> it with this olive oil. And, and then we'd be sent back to school treated. She'd laugh, <laughs> so that is amazing. I mean, she was quite cool. be marinating you. Yeah, <laughs> we could have been a bit of salt. We, you know, 20 minutes in the oven, we'd have been Forget delicious. You. But yeah. Oh my God. So that was the treatment at the time. But it, I mean, talking about the like, being that age and, and having an injury. And I mean, before it started and before the sort of Young Musician of the Year burning pain thing, which is so interesting because that's exactly what happened to me is at it Chess really? in, my, really? in my last year. And, and oh. I've, I, I remember having a similar um, response to it with eating, but I kind of had a more um, healthy eating thing. I, I, thought I went gluten-free and stuff like that, and vegan. That's a lot healthier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think it was because you didn't feel you had an identity as a cellist anymore that you needed to use like another thing to cope? I guess it's, I don't want to put words into your mouth, mm. but was it b before that all happened that you wanted to go to music college? I was, um, I was completely sure where I was going. I was going okay. to go to music college. I was going to be brilliant and... Well, as a performer. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing to do with Cambridge Academia. No, I mean, I, I, I loved writing and I loved literature and I was very happy to go to Cambridge and I was jolly lucky to get in with my two A-levels from a music school, um, particularly as I couldn't write and had to dictate them and me messed up oh. my English A-level, which now as an English professor is... You know, <laughs> it, was, it was, in fact, Cambridge let me in not knowing that there'd been a problem. And wow. that was incredibly fluky. Otherwise, mm. I think my life would have been very, very different because being able to go to Cambridge set me on a completely different path and has meant that academia and being a writer has been open to me. And, and that was incredible. In fact, the, the reason I changed to study English when I was at Cambridge in the middle of my second year was because a, a very rude flatmate called me Kate, who only talks to musos. And I thought, God, they're right. I, only, I can only relate to classical musicians, which yeah. is what 0.0001% of the population. I need, to, I need to get a second level to my personality. And so I changed to do English because my whole life was about music. My, mm. All my identity was in music. So now in my... 40s I have this I sort of return to this strange split in my identity at 17 or 18 where in my head I'm a musician but actually you know, on paper and and in person I'm an academic I'm a writer I'm doing English and my my life is in a different a different place mm. and so the the book that I'm writing now called cello a journey through silence to sound takes this moment of split and and I I kind of identified it really sort of articulated it to myself only very very recently I've completely ignored this and spent a lot of my career focusing on other people's lives and writing yeah. other people's biographies and not necessarily as a displacement activity but because that's what your PhD is and then that's what your book is etc etc and never really stopped to think well I, hang on I was a cellist once I, I remember that being quite important to me and um, and so just a few years back, I was having some publicity photos taken, as you do for literary festivals or whatever, and sitting there and feeling all gauche and smiling and turning this way and that and kind of wanting it to stop. And then the photographer said, go and get your cello because, you know, that would be interesting. And I said, well, I'm, yeah, I'm not really a cellist. I'm not going to be doing a concerto. 
I don't need a publicity photo with a cello. And he said, no, I just, I'm interested in how the light might shine off the instrument. So I did. And as soon as I had my cello and I was noodling away, playing Bach and just messing around, was absolutely happy in my own skin. And under the lens of the observer, I had my shadow back and I had my silhouette complete. Mm. And for me, that was the moment where I thought, even after all this time, even after all the stuff that I've done, after the unfocused, odd career that I've put together, as you summarised at the beginning, you know, what am I, academic, broadcaster, writer, who knows, stuff, stuff to do with musical literature, I still feel that I'm a cellist, even against the, <laughs> against the odds. And so that, if that feels that strong for me, with the little career that I have had and you know, whatever little potential I had, what would it be like for Jacqueline Dupre? What would it be like yeah. for Julian Lloyd Webber after 30 oh, years Lord, of an yeah. international career and not being able to play anymore? What's it like for the principal cellist of the Berlin Philharmonic whose right hand doesn't work? What is it like if someone is separated from their instrument or if the instrument is destroyed? What's lost and what is that relationship between body and object? And so that's been my research project for the last few years. And I've taken my cello on my back, quite literally, right around Europe, every possible corner of Europe, playing to people and playing in weird and wonderful places and meeting people and having adventures and following these particular stories, these particular biographies, but also thinking about how you see an instrument differently, how you might listen to it differently, how you can have fun with it and play around with it and and what happens when it's destroyed and what happens if it's resurrected and and these are all the kind of thoughts that have have spun this book into into being and it's been the most wonderfully therapeutic experience mm. because i you know when you're when you're structuring a book you think well what's the driving force what's the principle what's our jumping off point and so i use this idea of the photographs as my kind of way into my story and so begins a journey and, and of course, as a liter literary person and academic, I know I'm doing that. I know what my structuring principle is. You know, that's how you write a book. But actually, it's surprised me by becoming true that I have actually been on an emotional journey with the cello in the course of writing, which is mm. almost, you know, as, as a cynical academic, is, is really funny because it's actually turned itself round on me. And I find myself at the end of the book playing almost full time and and loving the cello and having a new cello that's wonderful that I can't yet afford. So if anyone listening would like to help me, <laughs> I'm going to be crowdfunding for it. But, um, but you know, it, it's a new identity and it is a dormant part of me that wow. has been neglected, even through music college, really, but since those early years where it was absolutely what I burnt to do. Yeah. And now I've found a way of reconciling all the funny identities I've created ever since with the 18-year-old in me who sat there in the music room not being able to touch the instruments and made something very creative out of it and mm. and it's helped a lot of other people along the way which is really another unexpected glorious spin-off from it of course yeah i mean you talk about now finding this resurrection of love and affection for it and and your identity as a cellist how was it then to be on the other side of that and would you explain your relationship with it, say, at music college and at uni as being one of hatred? Or would you oh, not quite use that word? Yeah, gosh, thinking back. Um, I don't think it was one of hatred, but it was quite distant. I think actually, it's interesting you say that. I think I probably hated my modern cello. Mm. My poor old modern cello, I did really abuse it. All its strings fell off and it sat behind the TV. <gasps> they <years>. are expensive. <laughs> this one wasn't, this was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but um, 
Yeah, because I had this beautiful Baroque cello, and that was a new start. And I got that just right. before I went to music college. I was borrowing a Baroque cello when I was at Cambridge, and I had this beautiful new cello. And so I think it felt like I'd had some awful, messy divorce with my modern cello, and and it wow. was just something I wasn't going to engage with. And it got to the point where it was physically unplayable because the strings had flopped off. And it just sat there for years, and I really? only played Baroque. And sometimes I even tuned it up to play a bit more modern, but it was definitely a Baroque cello. And, and so that, I think, perhaps I projected my anger and fury at it letting me down so badly onto my poor beaten up old cello that, that I didn't touch at all. More through neglect rather than outright hatred. Yes, I think so. Yeah. But, it, but it, was, it was a scapegoating, perhaps, mm. that rather than hating myself and abusing myself by starving myself, mm. I could neglect the, the modern cello that I didn't want to touch. Didn't the thing want that was causing you pain and yeah. the association with it. Yeah, Exactly. Wow. And it did cause me pain. If I played it, it hurt. So therefore, it sat behind the TV <laughs> with its wow. strings dropping off. It's so fascinating. Like, I'm totally... It's really just hard. Like, it's just it's really interesting. Keep, just well, I, I never thought about it like that, though. That, yeah. that kind of you're projecting onto the object is so interesting. Isn't it? And yeah. it is only now, it's in, during the course of writing this book, that I have a brand new modern cello. I've been borrowing one forever from the Royal College, which isn't that great and it's hard mm. to play. And again, that's not helped over, over my yeah. adult life so far, that it's a difficult cello to play and not well set up and it needs a lot of money spending on it. And of course, I've never invested financially and emotionally in my playing, particularly on modern, because I've, you know, I've got a family, I've got a career, I've got other stuff going on yeah. and I've pushed it right to the sort of bottom of my consciousness. And it was only when my husband mentioned just a few years ago, talking about the cello, and was thinking, it was saying to me, do you, do you not miss playing? And, and I immediately felt like I wanted to cry, which is very unlike me. Yeah. And it felt like someone pressing on a bruise you didn't know you had. You know? And I suddenly thought, oh, uh, yeah, actually, <laughs> I really do. Yeah. And it strikes me that like what you just said about somebody pressing on a bruise that you didn't know that you had, even though so much of this is about your internal identity, you've discovered so much about that through external things like the photographs, mm. through writing about other people. Um, yes, that's interesting. And I'm wondering with your identity, because I also almost did English literature instead of music college. Did you? Yeah. And me as well. well, <laughs> well I, I can recommend it, it's great. <laughs> but there was, there was such a feeling of like, I can't let anybody know from my English life that I'm actually a musician yes. and I yeah, can't yeah, let anybody yeah. in my music world know that I'm considering English and even when I got to music college because I did trumpet and harp mm. I was like I can't let anybody like I had to have like different websites or like yeah. I can't have both of my identities side by side otherwise it will compromise both of them yes did you have that at uh, all? absolutely and I still do yeah it, it's I have colleagues at Oxford who have no idea that I ever played a cello probably less so now so I'm about to produce this great big book called cello which is a bit of a giveaway but but even having I think one of my graduate students did my website and he's put a picture of me he's put the picture of me playing the cello which is from this photo session on it and when I saw that I thought oh no that's not right you know, I'm not a cellist that shouldn't be there and then as it happens I'm now writing a book about the cello so mm. it stayed but it struck me as wrong and in the wrong place and not part of that public narrative it is a really lovely photo though thank you I can understand why that because you I don't know like you look so right with it yeah, that, well, I, mean, I was so happy playing it. I it looks so like that, yeah. And also I think because it's, again, it comes back to a relationship to an object that it, because it's not about me. Mm. Those photographs were about the cello. So I'm, I'm happy for it to be about the cello and I'm happy to celebrate the cello as a body. Mm. And, and in a way, in doing that, perhaps we learn to celebrate ourselves 
but it is at one step removed. A cello is a barrier between you and an audience, and it's a torso-shaped barrier, and it's one that you hug. It, it is like a, like a teddy bear or something comforting and concealing, mm. um, which I don't think singers have, and I think there's a vulnerability about just presenting your physical self and your sound mm. unmediated to an audience. Whereas a cello is, you know, you cuddle a cello on stage and it is like a partner. Unless it's causing you pain. Exactly, exactly. And then it's an abusive relationship. Yeah. yeah. I guess as a broadcaster, though, and this is what I've enjoyed about the tiny bit of, if you could call this broadcasting, I don't know. This yeah. is broadcasting. Thank you. Thank you. We've got microphones. Look at you go. <laughs> got an interface over there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but that's what I have liked is that with my performance anxiety and things I, I've often spoken about it getting in the way the cello got in the way of oh, yeah. sometimes of me feeling I can express myself so I'm just wondering did you find ever that broadcasting in academia was in any way a relief or was it always just a sort of I can also do this no it was such a relief it was such really? a relief and I find it so easy to gabble live on the radio because when you put your finger on a note it's it's either an f sharp or it's not and it's out of tune mm. particularly with baroque there's absolutely mm. there's no vibrato to hide behind whereas when you waffle on like this you can you can talk nonsense and then you can say so it's so in other words it's what i yeah. mean to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for me it's like it's so much easier yeah um and in fact it's so much easier i'm a real liability because particularly when you're broadcasting in lockdown and you're sitting in your pajamas talking to a laptop screen you can say anything <laughs> and you forget there's actually probably someone out there listening and uh, but yeah it, it is it is almost cheating i feel mm. for me i would be much much more nervous playing yeah. but then of course the more I play and the more regularly I'm doing concerts the easier that gets obviously because you know when you're out of practice you jolly well should be nervous doing a concert because there's a chance yeah. it's not going to be great and but so. how has you how has your experience been now coming back to the cello playing more at the moment I mean how often do you play what kind of music are you playing is it mostly modern is it quite a lot of baroque still mm. like, has your cello life now in the process still of, of finishing this book and, and everything it's really joyful it's really really joyful for a long time i wasn't sure how to play if it wasn't sort of good professional yeah. paid work because i don't know what my where my level is and so someone who has freelanced for quite a long time trying to find a place in amateur orchestras is really tricky and i do slightly struggle with that um that i don't quite know where i where i sit within it all um, but I'm just starting to find that I'm leading Oxford Symphonia and it's a mixture of people, lots of them are music teachers, some of them aren't, some of them are fantastic players who mm. I assume are probably freelancers or, or have chosen not to but could easily have been. Um, and that's really fun because it's easy enough that it's not scary mm. and it's good enough that it's still quite satisfying and I can feel myself every, every concert just growing as a player and being very physically free and... Um, and that's great. And I, it's, there's no pressure on it. You know? mm. And then, then the odd freelance gig, which will be anything, you know, Durifle, Requiem, Messiah, whatever, just normal freelancey work feels absolutely fine. And in each one, I can feel myself kind of creeping up a little bit more to where I was and finding it less complicated. I've remembered mm. how terrible my sight reading is. Yeah, I, did, <laughs> I did Stravinsky, Dumbarton Oaks the other day, and my mm. goodness, counting. That's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Um, yeah, so that I've forgotten, because when you're playing Baroque, it's generally guessable, yeah. <laughs> which, which really worked for me. But uh, It's but, also yeah. interesting that you say your sight reading's not so good, but then you spent so much of your time in the library transcribing. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's funny, isn't it? But rhythms I'm appalling at. I mean, I'm, sure. I'm dyscalculic, so I will reverse and flip rhythms. Okay. Oh, me too. Hopeless, absolutely hopeless. <gasps> I didn't know there was a word for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've only known that because my 10-year-olds and my 17-year-olds are both massively dyslexic. My 10-year-olds at a special school. And so, and they've got it from me. It's an unhelpful mm. gene, I think, that I've passed on. Or not. But who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but, um, but it is no help for counting, I can tell you that. Wow. There is no way you could spin that as an ability because it isn't it's, it's so interesting like I'm, I'm smiling because it's just interesting that you even now you kind of want to put yourself in a box mm -hmm. of like a level yeah and that's, yeah that's interesting isn't it I'm just like you've gone through so much sort of adversity with your injury and everything and it's still like oh am I am I at the right stage am I am I not good enough for this ensemble am I not yeah and that's so much of what like mm -hmm. you felt at, at you're music right. school isn't it but also but I have arrested development because for most of my 20s and 30s I mean my 20s I was playing freelance but for most of my 30s I had babies and I had this academic right. career expanding and a lot of radio work and lots of writing and there just wasn't time to play yeah. unless it was going to earn enough money that I could cover the childcare for instance mm. I mean practical reasons as well as emotional and and so I think I, in my head, I am still early 20s as a player. And I am still right. thinking, is this the right ensemble to be playing with? Mm. Is this where I should be? But of course, all my colleagues are running major European opera houses or are fantastic soloists. And so there is that weird disjunct that, that you know, my friends are all fantastic principals and big orchestras. And yet there I am playing with amateur groups. And in my head, I'm a cellist, but I also know I'm not, you know, and, mm. On, on one level of that, you know, when you were maybe at, at Wells that you, you wanted yourself to be. Or yeah, exactly. You, you exactly. Sort of and I was on the same trajectory yeah. and mine's gone on a very crazy journey, yeah. whereas theirs has stayed going straight ahead or not, as the case may be. I mean, that yeah. is also really interesting. Yeah. And I think it's happening more and more as people mm. realise that actually being a musician doesn't have to be linear. I think it's one thing we say all the time. And yeah. I think Rebecca especially you've been someone that's always been okay about having quite a few things quite a few interests yeah I mean sometimes to my detriment maybe <laughs> but like that's so freeing for me to know that mm. you're so okay with that like just just intrinsically okay because I think for so long I was like I have to just be obsessed with the cello and there's yeah. nothing else in my life is allowed mm. but you're sort of like you've always sort of had either running or like can make money yoga or <laughs> um but Thank you. I wonder whether it is also a generational thing or Maybe. whether it's a music school thing that for me, the very, the idea of diluting anything about what you do, it's about being a fantastic, brilliant soloist and diverting into writing reviews of theatre productions or writing books or, or using music in a different way is missing the point always. Mm. You have to be practising, you have to be pushing yourself. And that was my mentality. And I don't know whether it was a generational thing because perhaps careers were more linear. I mean, you know, this was yeah, this sort of mid-90s. Or whether, or whether it was just me or whether it's a specialist music school and it was perhaps my background that I had got this incredible, mm. huge break at, at a formative age and I desperately wanted to make the best of it. So I wasn't going to dilute it with other stuff. And so ever since then, my meanderings around expressing myself to do with music and literature have felt to me quite unfocused almost until now. Mm. And, it, and I find that I, that I almost build my career backwards, that I can make sense. 
So now I, I have a career talking about literature and music in the 20th century. And sometimes that's writing a book, sometimes it's making radio documentaries, sometimes it's performing on stage. It makes sense of my cello CV, like you were saying, Rebecca, these kind of two different identities and my literature CV. And now I can make a virtue of it, but it's taken till now to look back and go, yeah, I, I totally meant to do that. <laughs> it was a plan all along. You know, so. oh, I think there's such a huge disconnect between being like a holistic, like well-rounded artist and yeah, people that live their art, you know, being a good artist to them means having all these different interests and informing yourself through different pathways or the kind of obsessive musician who's like, I can only practice. Like, the kind of masochism side. Yeah, like I won't go out, I won't see people, yeah. I won't like absorb art, I will just play and that's how I will get to this point. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Um, I don't know whether you know more about it from doing biographical work, but it feels like maybe the more masochistic side is more of like a, maybe more of a modern thing because we have to get to places really quickly in order to make mm. the money whereas I feel like historically to be, be an artist you had all this time and like yeah money wasn't like amazing but it was your life rather than just there was more space around the edges wasn't yeah there? we were all going at it much faster mm. yeah I wonder whether there's yeah that. that is interesting but of course as a biographer the people who are masochistic can lock themselves away to get brilliant make much less interesting subjects <laughs> so, yeah that's really I, true I think yeah, so I I have read quite a, a bit of the Eiffel Gurney biography. Have You're you? obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> and it Good was just you. so cool. It's I don't know if, if you wanted this or whether you... I haven't read anyone else's review on it, by the way, so this is just me, like going for it here. You're a worthy um, reviewer. Yeah, I'm, I'm, your review will be just as good as it, unless you're about to say it's rubbish, in which case, no. Yeah, you're a terrible so. reviewer. <laughs> I, and I know it might have been because I knew I was going to meet you, and so then you also are slightly more motivated to read something, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I really couldn't put it down in the way that other biographies of artists, I have to reread the page like three times. You're good at putting books down, is what I would say. Some yeah. books deserve to be put down, mm. depends yeah. on the book. And I just think there are so many biographies that are like, I'm not going to name names because I, I really actually don't know, but I have read some <laughs> which, gosh, I have to read three times. It's just full of like references that I don't get. And yeah. it doesn't feel either that I get a full impact of, of who the person that I'm reading about or what their life actually felt like. Mm. And I was wondering whether this style of biography is something you've been inspired to do based on maybe other types of biography but I feel like the mm. composer biography in general doesn't feel like it uses the style that the Ivor Gurney one does. That's so interesting yeah yeah so you should be a reviewer they, you, you can keep that as a I'll stick that on my dust jacket it's a yeah they absolutely <laughs> you absolutely hit the nail on the head with it so so because of my strange identity as a literature person, I, you know, I'm an English lecturer at Oxford. I was a music lecturer at Cambridge. I I'm kind of sit weirdly between the two. Um, and I am deeply, deeply immersed in literary biography and in the way that we write about lives and in what Virginia Woolf says about mm. the way we approach her life and what lives we tell. And I have wonderful, very, very eminent literary colleagues who I'm constantly in discussion and dialogue with, which is a huge privilege. And so I bring that kind of hat or that life whatever mm. to musicology 
and they are different worlds and it is really interesting having one foot in an English faculty and one in a music faculty because the way, as you say, the composer biography has developed is nothing like the kinds of debates that we have in, in English. Yeah. And the kind of wacky creative ways we have of grouping lives together or of telling lives in different directions or of messing around with them and putting ourselves into the narrative and just being creative and seeing where the where the boundaries between the ways we might write a novel, for instance, the mm. ways we, we might write a biography might be. And so I absolutely draw on that tradition when I approach writing about composers. And there is a whole world of exciting projects to be done, animating the lives of composers and finding different ways to tell stories. And it isn't, I don't want to be new, I don't want to say musicology is 40 years behind English literature because it's not a race. <laughs> and as you yeah. say, we shouldn't put things in boxes, but it is its concerns are different. Yeah. Um, and I'm really, really interested in how we make those lives yeah. more readable or just making the writing more artistic. Yeah, yeah. Making it a, a work of art to tell those stories. That is literally what I couldn't believe. I'm a bit of a 20th century music geek. Oh, cool. Um, I've, I've had a big obsession with Elgar for a long time mm -hmm. and Walton and Britton and... Anyway, it's another thing. <laughs> it's another side of my life. But having those interests and having read the biographies of Elgar mm -hmm. many times and Britain, mm -hmm. blah, 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 it was never something that I wanted to read. Yeah. Whereas I feel like the style with the Gurney biography, it was always something that I wanted to go back to and read and read and read. Well, then it's done its job. That's exactly... Well, that's, you'd be exactly who I'm writing for. Someone who has an interest in music and 20th century music but it's a book they actually want to read. Yes. That's, yeah. Because with the fantastic. Elgar ones, it was like, oh, I ought to read this because I'm interested in him mm. and I really want to get to know more about him, but my bloody health is so fucking boring. <laughs> well, I feel like so many of those biographies are, are what something you said about um, the framework is the pieces of music that they composed and it's yeah. just like filling in the gaps between or something yeah. and it's yeah. like well that's not really yes, that exactly interesting yes, gap filling and actually when you when you try and when you start writing a biography and try mapping that out you have your your washing line of events your sort of timeline of a life and then you have your washing line of pieces and they don't fit together really well mm. you know how how do you say what he had for breakfast on the tuesday in which he finished writing symphony number no. three and make that interesting or make it in any way a kind of linear narrative with a drive behind it. It's jolly difficult. So you have to find different ways in. Yeah, I was also really glad that you didn't give like a massively long, like boring dilly dally about his childhood and then you went like straight to the <laughs> I, I cut like, it yes. I did do that and it's then I so thought I, I'm too bored even to read that myself I'll start when he's 20 because <laughs> yes. that's when it gets really interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly the, the linear the cradle to grave or, or the sperm to worm biography yeah. as we really call it um is is really quite hard now to publish and I, I made mm. the choice with Gurney because there is, so, I mean, for, for your listeners, Ivor Gurney was born in 1890, died in 1937. He was the weird thing of being a little bit like me. He, he was a poet and composer. And, and it's almost unprecedented, you know, apart from going back to John Dowland or Thomas Campion, you don't find someone who is equally brilliant in those two areas. And by brilliant, yeah. I mean, not like me, he was brilliant. So that in itself poses a structural problem. You've got to look at all the poetry and you've got to look at all the music in the same breath and the life and hold it all together. So there's a lot of stuff with Gurney. Um, he was in a lunatic asylum. He was in the First World War. And so there's a huge amount of archival material and, and historical knowledge you have to hold alongside the events of the life. 
and then he's locked up in 1922 for the rest of his life for 15 years. So then you have the whole history of British psychiatry to meld into all the stuff that you've got. And he's still churning out music and poetry like there's no tomorrow, which there wasn't for him. There was no tomorrow. Mm. He's writing, you know, writing into a brick wall, effectively. So, mm. so there's a massive amount to hold together in one book. So I had to make the decision that actually, if I tried to be too clever with this, and if I tried to muck around and do it by theme or, yeah. or start with the death and work backwards or anything like that, it would just be jolly confusing because so much of his material is unpublished. So I'm holding together a lot of manuscripts that people have never seen, songs they've never heard because they're still all in archives, as well as all this material. So I had to make it linear and you know start with him early and end with the death effectively. But within that, I messed around yeah. as much as I could possibly within my framework, which is why he starts at the age of 20. Oh, and I, so and I just simply looked at the first three chapters and thought, well, what do we really need? Yeah pulled out the bits we need and then backfilled it from the age of 20 yeah. onwards. So when we're thinking about his mother, I will pour in the stuff you need to know about his mother without it having to be in chapter one and two. Well, they do always say like, don't start your biography with, I started the trumpet at the age of seven. <laughs> or well, what's worse is my great, 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 great grandfather played the trumpet. Don't. And then let me tell you about his don't. sons and cousins. Yeah. And then let me tell you about theirs. And Seriously, By which please. time you've lost the will to live. Yeah. But, um, oh, 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 two questions oh, after you. Really? Lady, yeah, go okay. for it. I'm just really fascinated to know why a lot of your subjects have been and are continuing to be musicians, performers, composers who have lived through adversity. Mm. And actually quite quite a lot of them, I suppose, have had that specific um, experience of mental illness, which is something that obviously- Mental I illness, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quite funny. Mental Sorry, illness. Sorry, go <laughs> Why do you think you wanted to talk about complicated people like Gurney, mm. for example, who have stigmatised lives. It's very easy to say he went into the asylum in 1922 and then, you know, the rest of his life was there for yeah. stop kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's so much more to it. Than yeah. That. And what I'm trying to say, why, why take the risk of being, of choosing people with such adversity and difficult stories and painful stories? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so I started working on Gurney during my PhD, in fact, my PhD ended up being about Gurney, but I'd actually, having, you know, f playing full-time and having left the college a few years before, went to Cambridge to start a PhD on women ambulance drivers in the First World War, until my PhD supervisor realised that I was playing full-time as well. <laughs> so why don't you write about <laughs> oh my Gurney? Because no one ever has but, you know, talked about the music and literature in, yeah. at the same time, because I was equally trained to do both, and that's oddly unusual. So, so that's how I ended up with Gurney. It was just that it actually right. makes sense for me as someone in an English faculty who is a professional musician to look at Gurney if I'm interested in First World War poetry and First World War writing. So that's how I ended up with him. It wasn't that I was drawn to the stigmatised, damaged yeah. life. And yet I, I became obsessed with the asylum and, mm. and spent years and years um, leafing through medical case notes and through the British Medical Journal and tracing the experiments that they did on some of the patients. And you know, Gurney was given malaria at one point and I can track it through all sorts of different reports and extraordinary things mm. and became really, really fascinated by it. And I'm very, very interested in how people identify themselves against enormous odds, how you, who you are. If the asylum says you're patient number 4,260 or whatever it was, 
how you maintain that you are in fact Ivor Gurney and you are a poet and you're a composer and how mm. how you write that identity into being as as a form of self-preservation effectively but it was a it, it kind of segued into that wow. and and I think also there are it's hard to find lives that aren't complicated I don't think I seek them mm. out what I found really fascinating with this cello book is that I thought this would be a book that would be joyful and, and exciting <laughs> and, it, and it seems to be it's all about, about the holocaust okay. mostly <laughs> it's really bleak and and it, it is you know there, there are there are wonderful joyful things in it and lots of fun encounters and adventures but but I am automatically drawn to stories of war and stories of of destruction or surviving against the odds and and that is fascinating. And I, you know, a therapist would have a lot of fun with that at great expense, I imagine. But <laughs> I, <laughs> there I was thinking I was writing about the cello. There I am in Auschwitz. You know, it's, yeah. it was, it's quite something. But I think perhaps if I were to be more philosophical about it, that when you are pushed to your limit, whether it's in the trenches or in a concentration camp or in an asylum, everything becomes in stark relief. Your relationship to your instrument, your relationship to your craft to your identity, to whatever it is, has to be held up and held onto. And so at that moment for the biographer, there's the moment to think about what a cello means if you are the baseline in the camp orchestra in Auschwitz or mm. what your poetry means if you're writing in an asylum and nobody is publishing you, but everyone thinks you're mad. You know, What does your sane voice mean to you then? Wow. Yeah. So much more than if you're having a nice career, you know, middle-aged, bit of a paunch, 2.5 children, whatever, and a nice wife. It's, it, you know, it's when it's absolutely pushed to the limits that it becomes fascinating for me, I think. I was just interested in Ivor Gurney himself because mm. I haven't read the biography yet. Well, that's not very good preparation. I know, I'm <laughs> sorry, I was teaching. Um, <laughs> but... Oh, my beautiful... <laughs> I love it. Da, 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 da. I mean, this could be the Bells of Gloucester. It could be. We are obviously in Gloucester Cathedral. Yeah, this is because Gloucester. Because we're on site for Gurney. I was going to ask whether they used his work against him to keep him locked up. Was that a thing? That's such a good question. My goodness, I wish I had students this cool. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, it was. And, and I don't think they meant to, mm. but they do. So one of the things that's really chilling that I read in the medical notes, which are written by his doctors whenever he's seen and assessed and they make a little record of it, were that they would put symptoms alongside the facts of his biography which of course for me is completely fascinating because the responsibility wow. as a biographer is how you present the facts of a life in a shape that mm -hmm. has some integrity to it and that perhaps the subject would relate to if if they could see it so you get phrases like um sits with a cushion on his head to ward off electrical waves believes the machines under the floor are torturing him claims to have been assistant organist in gloucester cathedral and you think now nah, hang on a minute one of those is true <laughs> that's oh, not a symptom and they're not wow. saying that it's delusion but the claims works very hard in that context or wow. you know claims to be writing poetry well yeah, <laughs> he really, really is. And there's lots of it. That's so um, interesting. But it becomes, because your life story is not in your own hands. When you yeah. hand over your all control to an institution, you are not your own person. You are a patient with a number. Yeah. Um, and so it's very easy to read that as being the institution being hostile and and him having his own identity used against him. And indeed, there was a case, uh, rather famously, of, of a, an American asylum where some patient was kept in under delusions of grandeur, which is a very usual thing that people think they're the queen or mm -hmm. something like that. And, um, and he believed he'd been a famous 
famous composer and a famous pianist and um, and he was in the asylum till he died. And then a couple of years later, they're clearing out some boxes and found the programmes of all his concerts. And, you know, and I, and I don't think he was in an asylum because he claimed he was a pianist, but mm -hmm. it had become a symptom. His, his pre-patient identity and his patient identity, it's sort of, you know, one, one casts doubt over the other, effectively. Yeah. So it is fascinating. If every musician <laughs> was, like, assessed based on their artistic worries and stuff whether we'd all be in an asylum they like, would be overcrowded yeah like my therapist when I often start talking about like stressing over yeah some piece or some note she's like she looked at me really weird yeah mine like, did as well are you okay and I'm like it's just being a musician man yeah like, just you just just blow it off don't we? Like, I had yeah. that when I was like oh I went to my therapist at the end of like second year and I was like I only got 68 in my recital and it was literally like the end of my life that I hadn't got <laughs> yeah, first. And they're like, huh? And she looked at me with this look that I'll never forget that was like, are you okay? What is this? Why does this matter? But then you'll say something like, oh, I've played in the Albert Hall, like just like it's nothing because it was with like some youth orchestra or something. <laughs> and they'll be like, that's amazing. Why aren't you bigging yourself up? Like yeah. you should have this sense of grandeur about yourself and you're like nah it's just fine I wasn't paid like yeah yeah, well, yeah. I don't understand what the it's big really deal is that the world does look different to non-musicians yeah and what we see as an achievement is not necessarily what the outside world would see I think that is part of the worry that people have about talking to musicians about things is that you kind of need to be a musician to understand whether something is the perspective is different yeah a lot of the yeah. time and but then that alienates us from non-musicians yes and so in the case of asylum doctors or whatever it's like surely you'd need to be a poet or a musician to analyze this person's work to decide whether they were actually mad or whether they were just artistic yeah yeah and who gets to make that decision yeah. and the only moment where Gurney's condition seems to improve in the asylum is when a very junior doctor who just qualified in Edinburgh comes to the asylum for his very first job basically mm. and he was a flautist and very interested in poetry and it turns out and you can't tell from Gurney's medical records but it turns out that he was taking Gurney for walks around the grounds just the two of them off record so wow. again we have to be really careful what we read into what we find yeah. written because it's at the tip of the iceberg a lot of the time and sometimes actively misleading mm. and so they were talking going for walks and he remembered that when he got Gurney talking about musical poetry he just lit up and he clicked into Aww. being the person he was before but if you sat him down in in a in a clinic or in a room and said now tell mm. me what your mm -hmm. delusions are he would be very taciturn or he wouldn't speak to you and after a while he refused to be assessed by any doctors the last few years in the asylum he simply won't let anyone mm -hmm. near him but when he was with this, with Dr. Anderson, talking about music and poetry, he was himself. You mm. know? And Being taken seriously as well, yeah, probably yeah, for the yeah. first time. In Someone speaking his language yeah. and having the, the respect to do that. But you know, Adeline Vaughan-Williams came to visit him and said he's so desperately sane in his insanity. And surely it would be kinder to let him have one day in the Gloucestershire Meadows, even if he kills himself, mm. than to keep him locked up there forever. Which, which I think, I think she was right. It's, it That's was such an interesting, like, ethical, isn't it? Question. Yeah, I think. Well, I'm even reading today. You know, obviously, I'm very interested in mental health, contemporary mental health. No mental way. Health. You would never know. <laughs> you should would do you? podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I should know. You should do blogging. <laughs> but on Twitter, you know, and that's where I found most of the information that I know is true. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. Yeah. <laughs> 
people are still saying that today that you know once you enter an asylum you are everything you say is either used against you or said mm. um you're not in your there's a way of saying that i've forgotten you're not in your right mind or yeah mad what's it called sad bad. It, there's a phrase but it's fine <laughs> and it's funny how yeah i don't know i'm just making a point of like still the the culture of asylums is very dehumanizing for people even yeah. today and, and often very counterintuitive in the help that they're able to give and the support they're able to give people yeah and even worse i think in some ways now because in Gurney's case he was with doctors who were with him for years and people mm. knew his story even if they might use it against him or even if they could discount it they at least had a longer view on him whereas if you are either in an asylum with changing medical staff or are in the community with a different psychiatrist every couple of months, the backstory to you or the, the series of events that led to this point of crisis that is being presented to them isn't part of the equation because there is such a turnover of staff and the, the biography of the patient isn't valued in the same way or the ways in which the patient narrates their own experience isn't paid attention to. And that means that you are doubly silenced. You are divorced mm. from your story and the ability to express your own story is, is not considered, is not sort of written into, into your treatment. And, and a lot is being missed, I think. There's a very interesting book by a woman called Barbara Taylor, who is a great historian, but was, had a huge breakdown and was um, in Fran Barnett's asylum. It's called The Last Asylum. And she talks about exactly that, that actually, the asylum in, in many ways was a very good thing for her. It was one of, you know, a, an asylum like Gurney's huge Victorian institution, which is now pretty much closed and everyone's out in the community. And she had this experience that nobody knew where she was coming from and you have to start afresh each time. And it's, it's really disruptive. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about the fact that, especially if you're sectioned or, you know, taken away to be put into an asylum, nowadays that's under the care of the police. Mm. Um, which is another institution that's not equipped to deal with mental health in the way that you would hope, potentially, in Gurney's case. Yeah, just can't get the quite the right people. But I, I was going to ask uh, whether, or what your views, this is quite a huge question, but what your views on musicians and mental health is like nowadays, having been writing from a more historical point. Can you see... Yeah. Uh, a contrast with how musicians are treated nowadays or that's really interesting i i imagine in the last few years there will be much material for phds to come and studies and you know having been very i'm very very closely associated with the orchestra southbank symphonia which is a fantastic institution based at st johnson's square and it's all musicians in their mid-20s really who've finished music college finished postgrad from all over the world and come to london to study for a year and so when lockdown hit there was a new generation of southbank players all from all over the world many of them without very much money, all of them with their, their freelancing work completely cut off, no possibility of teaching unless it's online, away from home and not able to get back to New Zealand or wherever. And the mental health implications of that were enormous. They were, they were huge, huge problems for them because you can't survive as a musician and there is so little work and it is so badly paid when there is work and when there's none and you're isolated and that your need for a musical community is is stymied because there is no ability to make music. It's very particularly bleak. I think for actors as well it was, but there is something about a musician being cut off from 
what you do, whether it's because the climate is so hard to make a living and there are so many more of us being churned out of music colleges than there are jobs in orchestras or you know, whatever it is, um, or whether it's because it's an artificial barrier being placed like lockdown, mm -hmm. I think there are very particular mental health concerns. And I imagine it was a jolly sight easier 100 years ago or so mm. when there weren't that many great British players and orchestral playing was not as good and we were bringing a lot of people in from over overseas, but I would have thought that it would be easier to get full-time employment as a musician then than it is now. Mm. And that, of course, comes with its own mental health implications. Are you looking for a no-nonsense topical arts and culture series? Do you want to hear real arts professionals discussing hot topics? Twice a month on The Culture Bar, we discuss topics such as LGBTQ+, climate change, diversity, technology and politics, getting under the skin of the arts world and making real change. Featuring passionate and knowledgeable guests, in each episode we try to breathe new life into the arts, discuss alternative views and shine a light on murky situations. So if you want to find out more about the real arts and culture world, The Culture Bar is the podcast for you. I really want to know about... The, the book cello mm. as much as you can tell us because I really I can't wait <laughs> <laughs> so exciting um in terms of covering these cellists who have been through difficult things you've been through your own struggles how do you look after your own mental health while going to Auschwitz while delving into people's lives Jacqueline Dupre's end of her life and even before the end of her life wow that was depressing I spent quite a lot of time when I was out in Auschwitz watching Emily in Paris on Netflix. Oh, <laughs> that helped. Okay. Yeah, okay, that was quite a contrast. Um, yeah, no, seriously, no. Um, yeah, gosh. I think what has really, really helped me, particularly with one of my stories, one of the, the biggest of the four stories, um, was that I actually become involved in it and in a, in a creative, constructive way. And I'm constantly thinking, I, I can't make this better. I cannot cure the Holocaust. I cannot mm -hmm. fill in these gaps of people who are missing. I can't make this okay for these people that I'm deeply involved with now. But in, in one particular story, a fabulous cellist called Paul Hermann, who was a Hungarian cellist, was in Berlin, very, very famous, sort of stellar young career. He would have been the next Pablo Casals, and that was how he was being reviewed in the press. Um, but he was Jewish, and he was hounded right across Europe, went, to, went into hiding in, in sort of southern France and was caught, put in a concentration camp in Paris, and then shipped up to Lithuania and killed and is in a mass grave there. And, and it's the bleakest of stories. And he wrote fantastic pieces, amazing cello concerto, amazing um, grand duo for violin and cello. Brilliant music is left. So we have something of his voice, but his cello is lost and I'm trying to find it. So this is a really long preamble because I'm working with his daughter who's now 90. And the last she saw of her, the, the cello and her father was when she was seven. And I have been able to restore so much of his story to her and go to these places with her and show her the places her father lived in Paris when he was writing to her and sending her copies of Barbar the Elephant. And, <laughs> um, but she could never go there because it was the war and mm. the, there was you know, sort of the borders were sealed and she was in Holland. And I can tell her bits of his story and I can talk to her about his music and help edit the manuscripts and help get it out there and get it performed. And it's meant that she, having not wanted to talk about her father until her 80s, 
is now so comfortable with his story and with owning this awful tragedy of her own childhood that just now for her 90th birthday party, she put on a concert of his music and Aww. heard some of it for the wow. first time. But 10 years ago, she wouldn't even talk about him. It was too, too much. Really? And so we've kind of been on that journey together. So for me, while I am in yeah. this awful kind of dripping cell in this fortress in, in Kaunas in Lithuania, where I know that Paul Hermann spent his last night and I'm there playing the cello in this dreadful space and playing his music and seeing the fields with the kind of bumps, which are these mass graves of tens of thousands of Jewish people. No idea where he is, but I know that he's there. I can make that a creative, positive process. Mm. She can never go there, but I can do it for her and I can write about it and I can restore something of him and I can have his music sound in that space, you know, and, and play mm. for him. And um, so I think that's the way I do it. Otherwise, and some parts of it are just too bleak. You know, there are there are things that I learnt working with the uh, the archivist in Auschwitz that I I can't bring myself to write because they're just too awful, and and areas where I can't go. You mm. know, um, one of the people I'm writing about is Anita Lasker Valfish, who of course is very well known to people not only as Raphael Valfish's mother but because she was the cellist in Auschwitz, and so I'm very interested in that relationship between instrument and this very extreme situation and and I feel when I'm talking to her that there are doors that are simply locked and she with great graciousness and great generosity of spirit will lead me down a corridor and I am jolly lucky to be there with her mm. but these doors are not for me to open or mm. even to ask about and so she's got the boundary almost for yeah, you yeah mm. because yeah. she has to because she yeah. can't survive unless she delineates the past and the present yeah wow so there are, i'm privileged to go on that journey with her wow and in terms of um when it's out mm. and all of this um so it's almost finished it's about to be given to bloomsbury who are my publishers and it should come out so within cool. a year so cool <laughs> so not, yeah yeah it's, it's with bloomsbury and it, it should come out within a year hopefully but one of one of the things that's that's stopping me from handing the manuscript over is that I am determined to find Paul Hermann's cello wow. because I can't find his body but somewhere out there in Europe his cello oh. is and I know enough about it that I could identify it and I can really? give people enough information to identify it but it's like it's like someone with amnesia who's had a knock on the head it doesn't know who it is and its player will not know who whose cello it was so the extraordinary thing is that I've learned over in enormous amounts of research trying to trace this this cello is that it has what has been called a burnt in inscription it's like a birthmark or a tattoo on it wow. and i've only just found what this inscription is which reduced me and his family to tears which is um ego sum anima musical i am the soul of music i am the spirit of music and this is what his cello says on, on the its body. ribs yeah on the ribs of the cello it's we can find described. it we can find it if someone out there so is playing rare. a Galliano cello that's worth a fortune, it's a beautiful cello with I am the soul of music in Latin inscribed on its ribs. Now, that's if pretty I can find that and play his concerto on it in front of his daughter, that's when I can publish a book. Yeah, so I'm kind of it's a reward. looking for this cello. I can't believe how clearly like personal it is to you. Mm. and like It's so personal. Oh, yeah. I'm just... Oh, it's so awesome that, you, that you're writing it and that you're that dedicated that you want to delay delay it to find this cello I would I would just be kicking myself if I published it oh. and then someone said hey I've got this Galliano with this funny inscription I'm like no 
Will it have to be a part two, though, Kate, if that happens? Yeah, telling the return. <laughs> this time it's even more the personal. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, yeah, it feels like your career pathway has been so personal to you and your body and your cello and everything. Yeah, and it but feels without like, me even noticing, you know, yeah. it's only now that I can actually theorise it in this book. It's, uh, do you know, I mean, you know you said you were not sure how much of you you're going to put in it. Do you mm. still not know? At the moment, I start it as a personal journey yeah. and you follow me, you know, you follow me going and getting a coffee and meeting these people and playing with these people and doing things in these places. And so I, I am the narrator through it as I tell these stories. Mm. How much I'm going to go on and on about the injury, I don't know. Um, Please do. <laughs> Please do another book. I'm a bit squeamish about talking about myself. Mm. It's such a kind of traditional yeah, academic biographer know. thing to I not write yourself in. But we talk about ourselves all the time. Yeah, so if, we're like... if, you want any, if you want any reassurance that you should. For me, it, it has everything... Everything that you write has to have a so what factor to it. Mm. it. I have to have a rationale for it. And, and largely that is a useful structuring principle because it stops you going off on one in a book, you know. Yeah. So, so if I talk about my injury, it's because it launches an investigation into struggling with yeah. cellos or something like that. There is a, there is a reason for it being there. It, it impels more narrative. Um, so I will just sort of meddle with it and see how much of that I need. But it also really... It means you understand what it means to lose a cello. Yeah, mm. I have a way of telling that story that somebody else might not. So that's, exactly, and it's that's it's a way in. so important though. Like when you were talking about being in a practice room and playing and listening to Bach mm. and sort of wishing you could be playing, it reminds me. I know people don't like this film, but you know Hilary and Jackie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she sat in the room, listening to the recording of herself playing and yeah. crying, and it's like. I know it's a different situation because she was deteriorating towards her death. This is Jacqueline Dupre. Got it. Thanks. I know it's a different situation, but in many ways, that is such a devastating place to be. Yeah. And you really know what that place feels like. It is. But at the same time, that was Jacqueline Dupre. And the, yeah. the, loss, the stakes are so high. It's, it's like tragedy you know sort of Hamlet. Right. you have to be a prince to fall to make it tragic mm. and that's something I wrestle with that yeah yeah I, I was good but I was 18 <laughs> and I was not Jacqueline Dupre and so when I sit with Julian Lloyd Webber and he's weeping and he's telling me about the moment on stage playing a double concerto with his wife realizing that he simply could not hold the bow anymore I I can't lay claim to that me in a practice room at school is not the same and so I have to I have to use my experience as a way of eliciting these narratives and a way of understanding, but not go, yeah, I totally know where you're coming from. <laughs> good point. <laughs> because I don't, you That's know. It's, really I have a, a, a very happy, lovely career doing all kinds of wonderful, wacky, creative things. And I have the privilege of being able to draw on those in order to think about these very difficult subjects. Mm. Whereas they don't, you know, they have made huge international careers being brilliant at what they do as a cellist. And then it's, all fallen apart and that's mm. that's a different level of awful so th i have to i have to tread really carefully with that mm. wow so to draw things to an end yes so we do our usual segment yes uh we tend to do a little win of the week <laughs> after because we talk about such heavy things and it's good to even just say something small that we are happy about i guess <laughs> this week i guess um Hattie, I'm going to make you start because right. you always have a pretty good example. Oh, I really don't. You do. I'm sure you do. Oh, cast my mind back to the week just passed. 
I can start if you want. Please. Okay. Please. My win of the week is putting my prices up for my teaching and finally giving my private students the Musicians Union contract so that like cancellation policies and stuff are... So good, so good that that exists. Yeah. Uh, particularly one student I have, he's always 15 minutes late and he often texts an hour before cancelling. So, <gasps> wow. But he had the gumption to ask when I'd put this contract in place. He's like, okay, well, you know, sometimes I might be running a bit late with my stuff like in the day. So like, really? could we have like half an hour leeway either side of the lesson just no, in honey. case? And I was like, no. no. <laughs> the contract says. That's really interesting though, because that means... You can't yeah. be taken for a ride, legally. Legally. That's I'll amazing. Point to the paper. <laughs> I'm going to give them a photocopy, in fact, so they can put it on their wall. Yeah. Anybody else? Kate, do you have one? Because I've still... My, does it count if your win is next week? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a really, so my, my prospective win is that uh, tomorrow night I'm going to be left in an empty house <gasps> for eight or nine <gasps> days oh. with no internet, no children. Hooray! and um just my manuscript and 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 all chaos will reign at home and my poor husband will try and make everything happen um along with our lovely oh, so you're not going to be at niece. home no i'm <gasps> going to be in in friend's house they're off on their narrow oh. boat empty house and just the manuscript and Brilliant. nothing else and i'm not going to let anything else intrude and i'm not going to do anyone's washing and i'm not going to answer a million emails and no. teach lots of people and just concentrate on having an overview of it because when wow. you have lots of children and lots of lives doing a really deep dive into what yeah. you're trying to write about and having it all in your head is really really difficult so that's a hard one win that's huge yeah are you excited or a bit nervous really excited but but lots of things keep intruding on it like, yeah I'm, yeah yeah just yeah life. i just i just stops. want my brain back <laughs> just, yeah. for, just for a week that makes I don't sense. Ask much. <laughs> that's that's gonna be awesome though We'll find the cello in that time, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. would you? Would you? Just while let you're me know. gone. Just That'll yeah, be worth turning little to do. <laughs> we'll find it and burn it while you're gone. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I don't have a very good sense of humour, right? No. Um, I really feel like today was a, a meeting you has been a, a huge, a huge win, and it really feels like it because yeah, I get really nervous to interview people and to to be with people and and mm. everything. And actually, yesterday was the first time I was genuinely really excited. You were. Because I was reading all about you and prepping the questions and stuff. <laughs> she kept texting me. It's so Aww. annoying. I was just like, I am so excited to meet this person. And the fact that this has enabled it to happen and, and you know, it just suddenly all occurred to me that like, what an incredible experience. And also for once, the sort of mental impact isn't so big. It's actually a real excitement and like a real feel, feeling of well, privilege. Really so, well, it's been you. it's been really wonderful for me as well. I I've thought about some of the things I'm doing in a different way, and it's lovely to have the opportunity to, to take a step out of your life and think about it objectively and yeah. theorize it a little. So it's been it's been fascinating, and you've both asked such wonderful questions that have oh. really made me reflect <laughs> on my own work, which is a real privilege. So yeah. thank you. Well, aside yeah. from being huge a fun. fantastic guest, you've also provided us with two venues yeah. <laughs> we should do a walking tour of london yeah. while we talk. honestly it's been Churches. fantastic church crypts yeah <laughs> um and because katie asked us to do this uh if you want to follow us oh, well on remembered. yeah on the social media we are at tmdta podcast on facebook instagram twitter tiktok yeah and also the website is www 
thingsmusiciansdonttalkabout.com. And also we have a Patreon in in case you want to hear us do our chatty episodes about once a month. Uh, Or you can buy us a coffee. Three pounds a month. Three pounds a month. And also if you want to crowdfund Kate's cello. (laughs) Yes, please. Or sponsor us (laughs) and or, yeah. Where can people follow you and the book and things? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm not very good at it, but I am there. I think at Dr. Kate Kennedy or Dr. K Kennedy or something like that. I'm around on Twitter. Well, f- um, they'll find you. Otherwise, the Oxford Centre for Life Writing mm. in uh, in Oxford, obviously, Wolfson College, Oxford. I'm Googleable and happy to talk. Wow, brilliant, awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so thank much, you so Kate. Much. Thank you, thank you.